for uh, missionary salaries that pays missionary salaries through the International Mission Board all around the world. We raised uh, in excess of $41,000. So that puts us just a couple hundred dollars under $60,000 raised that weekend for international missions. So your generosity is so, so encouraging. Um, That was some glad generosity that weekend. So that's the good news. The bad news is if you looked at your bulletin, February was kind of a disaster in terms of general giving to the church. So this whole rob from Peter to pay Paul strategy, right? It ain't, it ain't going to work for the long haul. So unless you like the idea where uh, if we have to pull back on the student ministry budget, unless you like the idea of the students meeting at your house, a hundred junior and high schoolers meeting at your house, we're going to have to turn around the general giving soon because um, we do, when, when it takes a dip like this, we do hold back on projects uh, and vision and dreams that our leaders have that uh, were intended to be funded, we wait on those and uh, until our giving is restored to health. So make a note of that. If by chance, you gave up being generous for Lent. Let me encourage you, break the fast. Now's the time. Go ahead. Don't wait till Easter. Uh, The needs of the church are great, so I hope you'll do that. Um, At the close of our service today, we will take the Lord's table together. And the Lord's table at North Wake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus who is walking in fellowship with him. If you are willing to repent of your sin and come to the table and find grace and mercy in Christ, then you are welcome uh, to join us in that table. And when we come today, I'd like to ask you again to use this center aisle and the far side aisles along the wall to approach the table, and we'll resume these two to head back to our seats uh, just to make things a little bit safer as you approach the Lord's table. So, So if you would like, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 19, and I will pray for us as you find your way there. Bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy on us. For a lot of us, this has been a hard week. Um, We've been busy. Some have suffered greatly. And for all of us, at one time or another, you've been pushed to the margins of our world. But now, Lord, we give you this time, we gift this time to you, and we sit And so, Lord, help us give our minds full attention to what you want to say to us now through your word. Give us hearts that are glad to receive it and willing hands to go and do whatever you would ask of us because we know that you love us so. And we ask this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Well, as best they can tell us, historians figure that it was a Friday morning on the 3rd of April in the year A.D. 33. When they pressed Jesus up that skull-shaped hill, bearing his own cross as far as he could, and then they pressed a passerby into carrying it the rest of the way for him, there would be no stopping this ascent. And at 9 a.m., they stretched out his hand, and then they drove in the nails, one in one hand and one in the other, and then his feet. And when he was affixed to the cross, they jerked him upright and abruptly and harshly planted it in the ground with all the gentleness and care that condemned convicts ever received. 
And then the weight of the cross settled in on his arms and pulled at his feet. And he hung there. And those nearest to him, the, the Roman soldiers and the Sanhedrin watchers and the mocking crowd, they heard him. They surely heard him say, even to them, words of mercy and forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they heard him speak to the criminal near him and say words of hope and promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And he turns to his mother And to the disciple who's known as the disciple that he loved, and he spoke these words of care to her, woman, behold your son. And then he said to that disciple, behold your mother. And then at noon, after he'd been hanging there for three hours, the sky turns inexplicably dark at midday. And for three more hours now, he hangs in silence as the judgment of God for the sins of the world, and that includes yours, and it includes mine becomes visibly manifest and presses on Jesus' soul an unimaginable sorrow and loneliness. Because for the first time in an eternity, quite literally, in an eternity, the Son feels forsaken and alone. And at 3 p.m., he cries out in the language of the Psalms, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then John tells us that after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And so with those two words, I thirst, we come to the fifth of Jesus' words and sayings from the cross. And there are only two words. In his language, it was only one. I thirst. And so today I'd like for us to look at this fifth saying of Jesus on the cross, kind of from three different camera angles, as you would. But again, the goal for us today is just to love Jesus more. It's just to see him and to love him a little bit more. And so from the first angle... This cry, this is the word of a man, a human being, a man very much like us. You know, historians tell us that in in their day there was a heresy afoot. In the Hellenistic world, it went like this. Jesus didn't really come in flesh and blood, much less die a gruesome physical death on the cross. Some went so far as to say that Jesus did not have a real or natural body. During his life on earth, he only was like a phantom. Flesh, they thought, was of the evil realm and could never be holy, so only spirit was capable of housing the divine, so Jesus didn't really die. He only appeared to. In a sense, he was only pretending. The Apostle John ran across the early strains of this thinking, and he wrote against it in his letters, as he said in 1 John 4, By this you know the Spirit of God. 
every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and, and now is in the world already. Again, in 2 John, he writes, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, and those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So Jesus' fifth word, I thirst. It reminds us that Jesus was human and that he died in the flesh for us and for our sins. The word became flesh. Dale Bruner writes, crucified, dying, and thirsting flesh. You know, the book of Hebrews comes to my mind when I read this in Hebrews 4. It says, we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus has experienced our temptation, our sufferings. Jesus suffered thirst like any other man on that cross. By some estimates, he was likely experiencing severe dehydration at this point. His last recorded drink may have come at the Last Supper the previous night, before the anguish in the garden, before the night-long trials, before the flogging, before he carried his cross up that skull-shaped hill, and before he bore it for six hours. And then he says, I thirst. Indeed. Have any of you ever been dehydrated? A number of, uh, number of years ago, I decided, Steph and I decided we would ride in a charity bike ride in honor of my sister. It was, a, it was an MS ride, and it was a 150-mile bike ride over two days. So you'd ride 75 miles, camp out, get back in the saddle, ride another 75 miles the next day. And Rob Craig told me that because I was going to be riding in groups, I could ride faster. Liar. Let's just get it out there. So I did the first day, right? There are people, and you kind of drafted, and you're riding a little faster, and you're feeling pretty good. But it was, it was an unusually hot day at the beach. This was at the beach. It was strategic. It was flat, so it was at the beach. Um, it's an unusually hot day in September. Um, you know, it was like 110, minus 25 degrees at the beach. So hot, right? And I'm, uh, by the end of the bike ride, I'm feeling... You know, a little, a little hot. And so we relax for the evening. You um, get ready to go to bed. I got a little bit of a headache. We camp the night, get up the next day and start riding the, the bike. First day, one of, my, one of the things that I remember most about the first day is there, there's a lady riding a mountain bike. And I, I don't know how to put this. She was big boned. We'll say she was big boned. And she was riding a mountain bike for 75 miles. And I remember seeing her as I just went right past her. So day two, I'm on the bike, and it doesn't take very long. Temperature goes back up to 110 minus 25, and, and uh, the sun's shining on me. It's hot. And I am not doing well, and I'm slowing down and slowing down. And I remember the lady, the big-boned lady with the mountain bike passing me 
on the second day. And, uh, but I was never so glad to get off my bike in my entire life as I was at the end of that day. I had gotten dehydrated the first day um, and didn't realize it, didn't, you know, replenish myself and suffered for it on that second day. But Jesus here is thirsty with what has been aptly described as the dry tongue of approaching death. This is not brought on by any mere bike ride. And interestingly, this is the only word on the cross that Jesus speaks of his physical suffering. I thirst. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was doing some yard work. Okay, I was transplanting some flowers. But yard work sounds much more manly, so let's just stay with, I was doing some yard work, and I had the little garden trowel, you know, and I was transplanting those flowers, and I, and I got a blister right in the palm of my hand. So like for 10 days, this blister was bothering me, and if, if you'd seen me and you'd asked me how I was, I probably would have said, you know, I, I got this blister in the palm of my hand. Um, Jesus was beaten and he was flogged and mocked and he'd been hanging on the cross for six hours and his only complaint, if we can even call it that, were these two words, I thirst. Nothing about the thorns pressing into his brow, nothing about the rough wood pressing deep into the countless lacerations of his back from his whipping, and not a word about the nails. Not a single word about the nails. You know, sometimes our portraits of Jesus are pretty one-sided. He's, he's sitting, and he has children in his lap, and he's surrounded by flowers and butterflies and baby deer, and that's Jesus. But this portrait of Jesus is a portrait of remarkable strength. There's no complaining. There's no whining. There's no blaming. There's no lashing out. Just a very human man suffering greatly, thirsting the thirst of impending death, showing us the strongest love imaginable. And that's... That's really the second angle I want us to see about this simple word of Jesus spoken on the cross is that it is very much a word of love. And some of you may be tempted to say, but pastor always says that. He always says it's about love. And I would say, yeah, you're right. I always do. It always kind of comes back to that. Especially when I think about the life and teaching of Jesus, the backstory always is he is caring for another. He is he is concerned for another. And these two words are really no different. Though they reflect his sorrow and suffering, it is a concern for another. And I get that from that little parenthetical phrase there that's in verse 28, right? It's in brackets. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. It's possible here that Psalm 69 is in view that says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. 
Or we may be making yet another reference to Psalm 22, this time farther down in the psalm, near verse 15. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And it's, it's a picture and it's a language of being parched. John intentionally notes that Jesus, in order to fulfill the scripture, said these two words, I thirst. Why would it matter to Jesus that he should be so careful to experience and to make his experience known of thirst while he's on the cross? Why, why fulfill such tiny little details? And I would say it's because he loves his father so. It's interesting, Jesus said back in John 14, I do as the father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus thirsts. He suffers thirst there on the cross to fulfill the Scripture because he loves his Father and wants to do his bidding, even in these little things. You know, it's just as Jesus would tell his followers, as he, as he tells you and me, if you love me, Keep my commands. And so Jesus, in obedience, in such minutia as suffering thirst and drinking sour wine, follows every little step of his father's plan. There isn't the slightest deviation. He will drink it all. He will suffer it all. He will follow it all because he loves his father so. So this is a word of love. It's a word of love from the son to the father, and it's a word of love for us, too. See, by fulfilling Psalm 22, he's directing our attention there one more time. And its echoes are throughout Jesus' passion, right? Psalm 22, verse 18. Listen for, listen for Jesus' story in these words. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then famously, verse 1 of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now we see in verse 15, My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus keeps pointing us there. By his obedience and love for the Father, he keeps pointing us back to this psalm, to Psalm 22, all along the way of sorrows, There are signposts from Psalm 22 that are all along the wayside showing us this is the one. This is the one that the scriptures have been pointing to all along. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the Savior of us all. And so in love for us, Jesus is fulfilling these things so that we can believe that he is in fact the Messiah, the Christ our Savior. In love, he is helping us see and believe that he is the one. That's why he is fulfilling it all, because because he loves us so. There's another subtle little reminder of his love for us. In the very next verse in John, it says, 
that a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Isn't it interesting that John tells us what kind of branch it was? I mean, why would you, why would you tell us what kind of branch it was? And why wouldn't it have been a fig branch or an olive branch or some other branch? Um, but I think what John is doing is, is he is pointing us back to the Passover in Egypt, to God's rescue of his people from the terror of the 10th plague, that, plague, that horrible plague of the firstborn. Listen to Exodus 12. It says to God's people, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, the blood of the lamb that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts of your doorway with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. It was hyssop that they put the blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb on the door with. And in David's great prayer of confession for his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Another writer adds that a part of the ritual of the temple worship was the cleansing of the people and the temple through the sprinkling of the sacrificial blood And it is the hyssop branch that's dipped in the blood and sprinkled on the people in the temple. When lepers were healed, the hyssop branch was used to sprinkle the cleansing waters on them. And for John then, he says, the hyssop branch was one more clue pointing to Jesus' identity as the sacrifice that would save all from death and deliver them from slavery to sin. John was saying, Jesus came to save and cleanse us from our sins Because he loves us so. Dale Bruner points out that what formerly the blood of the lamb on the lintel of the door did for Israel at Passover, the blood of Jesus from the cross will now do for believers in the cross. And so even the hyssop is a pointer. And you and I are invited to believe what it's pointing to, that Jesus loves us enough to bear our suffering and sin on the cross. And Jesus' suffering here is so much more than physical. And while he thirsts as 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 a human being, a physical thirst, even his thirst echoes the price, the spiritual price he is paying on the cross to be our sin bearer. William Beckestein writes, in the Old Testament, God threatened to make unfaithful Israel a parched land and fill her with thirst as an expression of his judgment. The tongue of the one afflicted by God's judgment sticks to the roof of his mouth for thirst, according to Jeremiah and Amos. Such was the curse for spiritual adultery. And then he says, in a startling way, Jesus inserted himself into his parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In hell, the rich man cried out for mercy, pleading for Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
And then he says, on the cross, Jesus, the mediator of the covenant of grace, experienced what he calls the thirst curse, earned by us covenant breakers. So Jesus' thirst, in a sense, is our thirst. It's a thirst that we should have borne. This cry of thirst, in this sense, spiritually, it's an extension of his cry of abandonment, of being forsaken, right? Now separated from his father by our sins, he thirsts not only for water for his parched body, but his soul thirsts for God, for the living God, as the psalmist said. In Psalm 63, you read, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so in, a, in an upside down turn, the one who once said that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. So the same one who would slay our soul thirst forever has taken on thirst unimaginable for us. He thirsts for God, forsaken on the cross. Surely this is a word of great and sacrificial love for us. You know, John would refer to himself in his gospel um, in a kind of self-obscuring humility, he would say, when he talked about himself, he would say, the beloved disciple or the disciple Jesus loved. That's when he talked about himself, that's what he would call himself. And I want you to know this morning that, that you could do that too. That you are the beloved disciple. That Jesus He loves you such that he would bear your suffering. He would bear the sorrow from your sin. He would thirst in your place. That's how much he loves us. This is surely a word of love for us, but it is also a word of invitation. Um, You know, To cry out in thirst is to request the kindness of a drink, right? Somebody comes over to your house, they're watching a movie, they have popcorn, and they say, man, this is good popcorn, but it's really salty. You would say, oh, can I get you something to drink? It's just just what you do. Somebody's sitting out in the back porch with you, and it's a hot summer day, and they're fanning themselves, saying, this is a beautiful place, but man, it's hot and hot and dry out here, you'd say, oh, let me get you something, let me get you some sweet tea, something to quench their thirst. If I, if I choke up up here, people run to the kitchen to get me something to, it's what we do when someone thirsts. It is both declaration and invitation when someone declares their thirst. And so it's interesting, in response to Jesus' declaration of thirst in verse 29, there was a jar full of sour wine that stood there. So they, the soldiers, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And scholars are divided. They go back and forth on whether or not this soldier's response is mockery or mercy. 
And uh, they're not sure, and I'm not sure, but I sure know what I, what I wish it was, what I want it to be. I want it to be an act of kindness for Jesus. You know, the, the landscape is so terribly dark, and Jesus' suffering is so unimaginably great. I hope that someone in his last hour would be kind to him. And I think it's possible, I think, um, after all, he had been there watching Jesus' terrible death done beautifully. As he prayed for the soldier who had nailed him there that he would be forgiven, as he, as he blessed the criminal and cared for his mother more than his own needs, it's possible that this drink-bearing soldier had heard Jesus speak the words. And we know that at least one of the soldiers sorted it all out, Right? It was a centurion, the soldier who was largely in charge of all the goings on there. In Mark's gospel, it says, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And if that centurion could figure it out, maybe this wine-sharing underling could too. At least I hope he did. I hope he did for Jesus' sake. And for his. Peter Gomes helps us see that this word of invitation, it's for us too. He says, This cry of thirst is a statement of fact, but it is also an invitation to respond. To state one's thirst is to invite someone to quench it. Suddenly, we're no longer mere bystanders, voyeurs, kibitzers. We are invited by implication and sympathy into the story. Jesus does not do his kingly death scene in silence or alone. We are now invited in. And so we are invited, not not to meet Jesus' physical needs as as the resurrected and glorified Christ uh, at the right hand of the Father. He has no needs that we can meet. But I think more in a sense of how can we love him? How can we love him back for what he's done for us? How can we love him in turn for his love for us? And Jesus himself gives a suggested shape for our love for him. When he taught in Matthew 25, this is what he said. He said, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so as, as you come to the table today to remember and to worship and to honor Jesus, I'd urge you to think about a couple of things. Think about how deeply you are loved that Jesus' sufferings on that cross would be for you. That Isaiah's prophecy had come true for you Maybe you could personalize it and say, surely he has borne my griefs and carried my sorrows. 
I esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement, even the thirst that brought me peace. And with his wounds, I am healed. Jesus suffered this great thirst, physical and spiritual, because he loves you. This is also a good time then for us to think about what does it mean for me to love Jesus back, to respond in love to this amazing love, um, to do to him by doing it to the least of these, my brothers. What does it mean? What does he ask of me to obey him? And I love what Christina Rossetti wrote. She says, what can I give him, poor, poor as I am, If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give my heart. And so we remember together on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? So Jesus, now now we love you back by our obedience to what you have taught us, that we should remember you in this way. So take joy in it, take pleasure in it, Jesus. And as we come to this table, Jesus, help us grasp a little bit better how wide and long and high and deep is your love for us. And give us grace to grasp what it means to love you when we leave this place, the obedience that perhaps you are asking of us even now. Press that upon us even further as we come to your table now in your great name.